0: Sing great. Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Looking into the last days in our study in Revelation 18, we see the world lamenting the destruction of Babylon and all of the wickedness that the city celebrated. In today's study, we begin to see heaven's reaction to Babylon's fall. So let's join Pastor Phil in Revelation 19 to hear more.
1: I'm going to just read something that J. Vernon McGee uh, said. And I think this was real significant, okay? As we look at... Uh, Well, let me read it to you. As we contemplate the destruction of Babylon, he said, We think of other great cities and civilizations of the past which have fallen. One of the most widely read books of all time is the, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, written by Edward Gibbon in 1788. Listen to this. He gives five basic reasons why that great civilization withered and died. Number one, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis for human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more and more exciting, more brutal, but also more immoral. Number four, the building of great armaments when the real enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility and morality. And number five, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. McGee says the oft-heard warning that history repeats itself has an ominous meaning to this generation in the light of what he has just talked about. Boy, it mirrors our society, doesn't it? Look, the world is terminal. We know that. We know that. The Bible says that. The real question tonight is, are you a citizen of Babylon or are you a citizen of New Jerusalem? That is the the only question that really matters tonight. Not who's going to win the election in November. Not what gas prices are going to be next week, not you know what's in store for the economy, are we going to go into a recession or a full-blown depression or what's going to the only thing that really matters is are you a citizen of Babylon? In other words, do you belong to the world system or are you a true believer in Christ and is your name written in heaven? Are you a citizen of New Jerusalem? And all I can say and I realize that there are going to be many others hearing my voice on CD and even on the radio that are going to hear me say this. So I'm talking to a lot of people. If you're not sure that you've given your heart to Christ, I would make sure tonight, I wouldn't let another moment pass without making sure that I have truly put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that I've invited him into my heart to be my Lord and Savior, that I have gotten out of Babylon, okay, come out of her, my people, judgment is coming. That I've gotten out of Babylon because I have, put my faith in Christ, and I have been translated into the family of God. You need to do that before it's too late. Let me close with one more passage. You can turn to it. 2 Peter 3. I think Peter gives some very timely, very practical admonition here. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 10. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, you can go green all day long. Know this, the planet Earth is terminal. You talk about global warming, it's coming. But not like you're thinking God's going to burn up the whole planet. That's real global warming. And Peter says, since all of these things, all that's visible, all that's material is going to be dissolved. Where should we be putting our time and energy? What should we be living for? Heaven's coming. Our Lord Jesus is coming is near even at the door. What kind of people ought we to be? We've got to be living for the Lord like nobody has ever lived for the Lord, since there have been no other Christians in the history of the church who have been as close to the return of Christ as we have as we are. How should we be living our life? I think it's obvious. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And when He comes, He will say to you, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Revelation 19. You know, at long last we have emerged out of the valley of the shadow of death and destruction called the Tribulation Period. The Antichrist's capital, Babylon, we saw last week was destroyed. His kingdom is in ruins. You know, the dark night of man's rebellion has finally come to an end, and the glorious new day of Christ's reign has come in the story. The have waited an awfully long time for this moment, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's what we're waiting for. That's our glorious hope. Uh, Unbelievers are looking to man to solve his own problems. They're looking to man, to science and other things, to figure out uh, ways out of the crises that we're in. The only way out of the problems that planet Earth is experiencing is the return of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's going to fix these problems. And when He comes, He will establish a glorious new kingdom. It will be the dawn of a new day, a new age really, the kingdom age. And it's going to be a glorious time. And we're looking forward to that. But we've, we've already been able to live through prophetically what we'll never be able to live through, praise God, historically, which is the tribulation period. So we've emerged now out of a section that really doesn't apply to us as believers living today. Uh, it's going to apply to the tribulation saints, of course, but uh, not to us. But it's good for us to know what's coming. Well, that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 19, where John simply begins with these words, after these things. Once again, the Greek phrase is metatouta, and it occurs four times in this book at the beginning of chapters 4, 7, 18, and 19. And here in chapter 19 refers to the closing events of chapter 18. Uh, Just to back up just a little bit, uh, verse 19 of chapter 18. They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. I kind of think Babylon gets nuked. She's wiped out. Of course, the earth dwellers are weeping primarily because all their means of financial wealth has been taken from them. But in heaven, there's quite a different scene. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now, after these things, after what things? After the things of man have come to an end. After man's kingdom has been wiped out. And and really, I mean, all that's left is for man to gather in one final attempt to keep Christ from coming back to the earth to establish his kingdom. Of course, it's a very futile attempt. It's not going to have any... Um, success at all. But after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. This loud noise comes from a great multitude. Same phrase that was used in chapter 7, verse 9, where we saw a great multitude that had been slain by the Antichrist. Of course, they were tribulation saints that were slain by him for not worshiping his image and so on. And uh, we see them gathered in heaven, a great innumerable multitude, asking God, how long before you avenge our blood on the people of the earth who have killed us? The Lord says, be patient, it's coming. Well, it has come. And um, for them, of course, this judgment of Babylon is particularly joyful. Joyful. As they have seen now, God destroy or judge those who not only have killed them, but have, you know, have dishonored the name of God, who have run him down to exalt the devil, if you can believe that. During this period, they worship the dragon, Satan, and the Antichrist, who is the son of the devil, and the false prophet who is, you know, also working with the devil. And it's amazing how the world at this period of time is going to become so totally deceive, up is down, down is up, good is bad, bad is good. It's a complete inversion of morals and values, and, and everything that we hold as sacred and good is going to be looked at as defiled and bad and so on. But God's going to straighten it all out. Anyways, we hear their cry, hallelujah. Now, hallelujah comes from a Greek word that really is a transliteration of the Hebrew word hallelujah, which simply means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The word hallelujah occurs frequently in the book of Psalms, especially as you get towards the end of the book. Interestingly, though, the word only occurs four times in the New Testament. All four occurrences appear in the first six verses of chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. And it seems as though that they have been reserved for the final victory of Jesus Christ over his enemies. I mean, it's the first time that we break see anyone breaking out in you know, in a chorus in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Well, because Jesus is victorious over his enemies. It's re- reminiscent of Psalm 104, verse 35, where the psalmist said, May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Finally, the earth is purged of all the evildoers. All those that are bent on, you know, killing the saints and and dishonoring the Lord and so on. And so we see this great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. And here's what they're praising God for. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. It's a song that is emphasizing God's attributes. And by the way, that is the proper way to honor him. Look, We don't rejoice because sinful Babylon is destroyed. We don't rejoice because this great apostate uh, city has fallen. We rejoice because God's name is vindicated. God's glory is upheld. The truth of God, right? I mean, right now people are calling the truth error, and they're calling error truth. But the truth is going to win. The truth is light. Light is always stronger than darkness, right? And Jesus came into a world of darkness as the light of the world. And before he ascended back to the Father, he told his disciples, all of us, now you are the light of the world. You know, shine forth. Go go into the world and be a light. Paul says, you know, let your light shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We belong to God. And don't be worried and afraid that people are not going to, you know, they're going to be upset because you're shining the light. Of course they're going to be upset. When you live in darkness, like they do, you turn on a bright light, people get irritated. They don't want, they want to surround themselves with darkness because that's what they're into. But you know what? We come and we are to let our light shine, which is just the character of God working through his people. And um, there are going to be those who are going to be drawn to the light. But, you know, the Bible says right here that God is true and righteous. And we rejoice in that fact that he is glorified by his holy judgments. Well, verse 2 For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So, two things that we see here. Two reasons, two more reasons, really, why God has judged this whole earthly, worldly system. First of all, because Babylon filled the earth with false doctrine, misleading many leading people into spiritual fornication, uh, which is the worship of idols. But also, then she went ahead and killed God's true saints, shed their blood, and so for these two reasons, God is going to judge this world system. J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, if you don't think what God is doing is right, it is because you, not God, are wrong. God will be righteous in judging the great harlot, end quote. You know, And I love J. Vernon McGee. I mean, you know, he comes from a period when, you know, I think that preachers were more bold. Their preaching was less watered down. They really just said it the way it needed to be said. There's a real problem today with people who think that, you know, when God judges, that's somehow wrong. How could a God of love judge, you know? Well, a God of love sent his son to die in our place and poured his wrath upon Jesus that we wouldn't have to be judged. But if you don't want to receive Jesus, then there's nothing left but to endure the fearful wrath of God upon yourself. So God is righteous to judge. He has to punish sin. And either you're going to receive Jesus who died in your place, was punished in your behalf, penal substitution, which means he was punished as our substitute. Either you receive him as your substitute, or you will have to be punished yourself. Now, verse 3 says, Again they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. This second Alleluia is connected to the statement that the smoke of Babylon will continue to rise forever. Now, this can't refer to the literal city of Babylon because, you know, a literal city is not going to burn forever. Obviously, it's really pertaining to the people that not only filled the city, but also who benefited from the wealth and the commerce of the whole system. Those that had turned their backs on God, they're the ones who are going to be, um, the smoke of their torment is going to ascend forever and ever. In fact, it brings us back to Revelation 14, starting in verse 9, where uh, John said, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image... And receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends for ever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever received the mark of his name. See, God warned, he is going to warn the people living at that time who, you know, start lining up to worship the Antichrist and to take this mark. He sends an angel to warn them. If you take that mark, you cannot be saved. Now, why is that? We're not sure. Uh, is the mark some kind of a computer chip that, when inserted into the forehead, has the capacity to block out uh, your free will? Make you kind of a, a robot in a sense? I don't know. But I know the scripture says very clearly if you take that mark, you cannot be saved. And those that take the mark, the smoke of their torment is going to ascend forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. And so, verse 4 says, and the 24 elders. And the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Amen means truly. Truly. Hallelujah. Truly praise the Lord. Wow. You know, just imagine heaven looking down and going, Wow. Man, Lord, righteous and true are your judgments. Praise you. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants. And those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now the twenty-four elders were first introduced to us in chapter four. And here, along with the four living creatures who stand around the throne of God day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we see them fall down on their faces before God and say, Amen, Alleluia. Just a small point I want to point out real quickly. The fact that the 24 elders, which, as we already saw in chapter 4, represent the church along with the four living creatures, which I believe represent all of the heavenly hosts, angels smallest to the greatest. I mean, because in in heaven there are hierarchies of angels. And so we see that the 24 elders representing the church, also the four living creatures that represent angels from the least to the greatest, are all introduced as worshiping God, which are separate though from the group of the great multitude, uh, which we just saw in verse 1, which seems to be Tribulation saints martyred for their faith. Just so you kind of see the distinction. Because um, we saw way back in chapter 4 how the church was raptured. And um, in fact, the church disappears from the narrative uh, after uh, chapter 6. The last time we see the church is in chapter 6. We don't see her again until chapter 19. So the church has been off of the earth all this time. But it says again, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Look, God has been reigning in heaven all along. God is on the throne. God is always on the throne. But the idea is that on the earth, the devil has been the God of this world. Antichrist has been in control for the last seven years. And now we see that God's about to change that. That Jesus Christ is coming back to take possession to, of what he bought and paid for on Calvary how he's coming back to take over and to establish his kingdom as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to reign over the entire earth from Jerusalem. One author said in his sovereignty, he has permitted evil men and evil angels to do their worst. But now the time has come for God's will to be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And that's a good way to put that, because when the Lord taught us to pray, one of the things he taught us was to pray that God's will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And that really technically ultimately was a millennial prayer that someday Jesus Christ would come back and that, you know, the will of God, which God mediates through his people right now, will be spread throughout the entire earth at that time. Not just among uh, a few faithful scattered all over the world, but we're talking the whole planet now. I think it was Isaiah who said at that time when the Lord comes back, The knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the earth like the waters of the sea do now. Cover the earth like the waters of the sea do now. And you're not going to have to say to your neighbor, Hey, come know the Lord. You know, because everyone's going to know me from the least to the greatest. All right, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." This is one of the greatest events in the history of the world. The marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. But listen, to fully understand and appreciate what is going on here, we need to know something of Jewish marriage customs. There were several steps or stages that were involved in a typical Jewish marriage. Now, I I thought that this would be a good place to kind of talk about this, since this is one of the greatest events in the history of the world, the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. And we know about this. We've read it many times. And and yet, if you don't really understand Jewish marriage customs, you're going to miss a lot of the impact of what's going on here. First of all, a typical Jewish marriage started out with what was called the engagement. Most marriages back then were arranged by the fathers of the bride and groom many times while they were still quite young and sometimes even before they were born. I mean, you're a Jewish family and you know another Jewish family, you're very close friends. And so the fathers get together even before the any kids are born. and They say, look, if you have a son and I have a daughter, let's... Hook them up, okay? Or vice versa, all right? And then they make this, this kind of arrangement, this engagement, sometimes even before the children are born. And the engagement amounted to a contract of marriage where the man and woman were promised to be given to each other by their fathers. You see, <laughs> the Jewish people look at marriage as being far too important to be left up to the decision-making skills of the younger generation. They figured, you know, this society depends on the strength and stability of marriage and family. I'm going to let my, my teenager make that decision? No way. You know, fathers typically made those decisions, and it was up to them to arrange with other fathers who your kids were going to marry. Well, that eventually led to the second stage, which was called the betrothal period. So at this point, the bride, and she was usually about 12 to 15. The groom wasn't much older than that. Uh, they would come together to meet, perhaps for the first time in their lives. That was often the case. And at that time, the father of the groom would negotiate the dowry, or the what well, was also known as the bride price, with the father of the bride. And the bride price or the dowry would be based upon three variables. First, it would be predicated upon the father's wealth. If the father of the groom was a rich man, well, then he would give more because otherwise you would look like a cheapskate. And, you know, you did not want to look like a cheapskate. Second, the price would be determined by the bride's worth. I mean, if she was very attractive or if she had certain gifts that she was good at. I mean, she was great at um, making clothing and things or she had other skills. Well, then she'd be worth more. And so the bride price would be set at a higher price.
0: You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse by verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.